Morning, everyone. It's good to see you folks this morning. Uh, I was about to say, Tim, it's really good to see you. We wish we could say the same. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's all right. Um, You know, one of the things that... uh, really enjoy about the privilege of being your pastor as I study for sermons and and things is the the uh, the other things that I come across um, that are fascinating and worth um, worth the time uh, to, to talk about so uh, let me ask you a question um, and I'd say this this one, I want a raising of your hands. How, how many would say that you've asked the Lord for something and it sure seems like he's being slow to answer? Sam knew where I, where I, where I was going. He already had his hand coming up. Okay. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of things that we look at that we see when we consider uh, God, when we take our petitions before him and we're trying to do things where we, where a lot of times, too, the things that we're bringing before the Lord are good and honorable. Sometimes it's about uh, children uh, being faithful in your home right now. Some are about children coming back. Some is about finding a wife or a job or all of these kinds of things where God has called you to it, and you're like, what's going on here is... Why is God, why is God not responding? Why is he slow? And uh, I, I, we're going to look at a few scriptures today in, in consideration to this. Uh, first of all, um, let's open up with a word of prayer and ask for his blessings. Our God and Father, we thank you for your kindness. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us um, the ability to trust you even when it seems like you're not quickly responding to our request. Requests we know that, that should please you and bring blessing to, to us, to you, and the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Second Peter chapter 3, beginning verse 8, it's just verses 8 and 9, it says this, But beloved, and I, I want to pause right there and just say, Beloved, okay, so he, here... Peter is taking a very pastoral uh, approach. He says, he's speaking, you know, in the kindest, gentlest, most affirming way. He's expressing the fact that he knows that you're carrying a burden. And and he says, do not forget this one thing. That's interesting. I'm I'm certain he's not asserting that um, it's the only thing, but it's a really important thing that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And of course, there have been some folks who in eschatological terms try to, you know, make this or in, in uh, you know, people that want to be long, uh, you know, long day creationist kind of things try to insert this in. But I think this, uh, the, the concept here is that uh, in the context is 
what seems very long to us is not long in God's eyes, in what he's doing, in what he's performing, in how he is bringing about his plans. Because then it says in verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Right? And he goes on and says, as some count slackness. Right? That slackness, slow, not moving with a sense of, of the kind of urgency that we think God ought to be moving with. And what it says, though, is, but is long-suffering towards us. So that's interesting. So he's not slow. He's going to work things out in his timing. Um, but it's but why does he do it? It's his purposes are actually full of mercy. It's full of long-suffering towards us. And his promised elect. And why do we see that it says this, that but long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, um, whatever the challenge you're having, I want to encourage you to continue to petition the Lord, continue to look to him for the answers, and know that keeps his promises um, so you know what, what what's the larger scriptural story I want to illustrate here um, you know sometimes I think we forget what you know that, that God really does keep his word and when he lays things out um, we don't always make the, the connections in the broader story so uh, what's our greatest problem surely everybody knows what that is sin right so right there in genesis we see that god makes a promise right that the seed of the woman that that satan the enemies of god they're going to bruise his heel right but in fact jesus is going to crush his head now in order to get there we need a king to deliver us we need a high priest to deliver us and you know you think about that God makes that promise. In the midst of all this, the, the people continue to grow and multiply, and they become so wicked, God brings a great, large judgment down at the flood. And yet, to deliver mankind, he saves just eight souls through that. And then, then what happens? God comes out, he reestablishes the mandate to take dominion, to be kings, and actually... There in, in Genesis 8 and 9, you see God uh, begin to, uh, he, he establishes the fact that Noah's given some kingly authority. We see the establishment of the civil magistrate for Noah to actually uh, bring about the death penalty if someone kills someone else. That's the first place in the scriptures where we see that's delegated from God's hand, like we see before the flood. Uh, into man's hand uh, with Noah. Uh, and yet, um, you know, Noah obviously is going to be in the line simply because he's part of the, the eight that are left, right? He's the father of the other men that are there. But that's not where deliverance comes. We see a lot of time go by, and then we come across Abraham. 
right? And God makes a promise to Abraham. And then that, that covenant that he establishes with Abraham, it goes, and it's not quick. It's a long time for Abraham just to see the seed of promise. And then, um, you know, it isn't that um, Isaac is simply the king, the deliverer, or the, the next generation after him with Jacob and Esau. That's, that, that's the deliverance. More time goes, and it goes on sometimes, in some cases, generationally. And then, of course, we see everything that goes on uh, in relationship uh, with Jacob and his sons and the turmoil that, that happens between the sons. And at the end of Jacob's life, something interesting happens. He goes in chapter 49 of Genesis, and he gives blessings to his sons. Um, and there's some really uh, interesting things that we have to consider here, because you know we know looking back that Jesus was from the tribe of Judah, right? And, and why, why was Judah the fourth brother down, the one from whom the kingly seed would come from. That's right. So we're going to talk about that. Okay. So the, the first thing we see in, in Genesis 49, verse 4, um, it says uh, this, um, that uh, Reuben, this is, this is the actual blessing that, that Jacob is giving Reuben, at his deathbed, he says, Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. And uh, basically what happened is Reuben took one of Jacob's uh, concubines as his own. That's, a, that's a, a place of usurping the father's authority by taking uh, one of his... Uh, one of his concubines, one of his wives, so to speak. Um, he's assuming the father's authority, and he's grasping it prematurely. Um, if he'd have just waited, if he'd have just been honorable, if he'd have just waited the, for the time to happen, then um, it would have fallen to Reuben. Uh, but in his own sin, um, he's disqualified. I beg, I beg your pardon. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that, but if he would just simply waited. I mean, we look at the, thing, the the situation with the concubine mostly, we just say, well, that was a sexually impure thing, and it was, but, but the act has implications of usurping authority, not just the act of sin. It's taking, uh, essentially, you're snatching a queen so that you can become king early, and, and that's, that is... Uh, both the defilement sexually, but also grasping for the place of power before God's appointed time. And so uh, th then you say, okay, what about Simeon and Levi? And, and then in Genesis 49, uh, Jacob comes and says this in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Now, of course, we know that, but that's, it's more than that. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Okay, um, and so you say to yourself, okay, what, what, what's this about? And you got to turn back and look at what happened in Genesis chapter 34 where um, 
we find that uh, Dinah, what, Jacob's daughter, um, is uh, assaulted, raped, and uh, then they, they are enraged. They're out in the fields. They don't know it. Jacob is informed. Jacob decides to wait for his sons to come back. Now, in part, you have to understand that in, in ancient times, um, the sons uh, were responsible for their sisters, not that the father had no responsibility, but, but in actuality, they're, they're the ones assigned uh, for the bartering of the daughter uh, to, be, to be wedded to someone. And, of course, the rapist decides that he wants to marry this woman now that he's defiled her, now that he's hurt her, now that he's uh, damaged her. He says, man, I still want that woman. And so uh, this man and his father come, and they, they come out, and they, um, you know, say, hey, look, we want to marry her. Maybe there was, I, I, the text doesn't show this, but one could make an argument, well, maybe they were trying to make things right. <coughs> but, but really what you see is that he is just, um, just engulfed in lust towards Dinah. And so what, what does Simeon and Levi do in Genesis 34? What happens is uh, that they say, they, they plan with deceit in their hearts. They say, I tell you what, we want her so bad, let's have you and everyone in your town be circumcised, right? Then we can kind of live in peace. We, we can look past all this. And it says these get, that, that the son is so focused. He's like, great. So, so this guy is so uncaring, not just towards Dinah, but everyone in his town, because he's willing to say, yeah, we'll all do that without any regard for uh, the fact that, that everyone else is going to have some pain and suffering involved in, in, in what he's doing. And what do they do? It says that several days later, that it says to this in Genesis 34, 25, now it came to pass on the third day when they, that's all those in the town, and the, and the, the father and the son, uh, who were negotiating for Dinah, that the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And then they looted the place. And then they were so vengeful and so full of rage that they actually came and, and cut the hamstrings of, of the oxen which produce, you know, that's what you use to, for your farming, right? So basically, they, they didn't just exercise um, judgment against the offender or against the offender and his father, and we know that's not scriptural either, but they don't do that. What they do is they take vengeance on everybody, and then they took everything. And then they're like, we're not going to leave anything productive here. We're even going to take those oxen that, that the people in the community and, and the area around and anybody left would have to depend on. Yes. Taking 
That was going to be my next oh, point. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. No, no. They're, they're using it to satisfy their own lust for vengeance. That's right. right. I think the deepest sin that they're doing is the same thing that the Israelites did with Ark. Right. And so, so what I think this often shows, to his point, that was exactly going to be my next point. Because you look at that and you say, eh, would that disqualify you as king? You know, they, yeah, maybe they just lost their heads and went too far. Right? But at the same time, they took... The covenant issued by God, the the sign of the covenant, the circumcision, right? And said, we're going to use that as a means to get vengeance. The first question is, did they have the right to dispense circumcision on another people? If, If those people came and said, we want to be part of the household of Yahweh, we want to be, we want to worship God. They could, in that sense, be circumcised and brought in, right? But the but but what was the issue at hand? Uh, Dinah, right? So it isn't about worshiping Yahweh; it's about worshiping my own lusts. And so, what do they do? They then defile the covenant, which disqualifies them. And of course, and in no no means do I do I want to say in any way that the rapist shouldn't have been dealt with. He should have, right? Um, and the the blood avenger was the son, should have been Simeon, right? But instead of, instead of executing judgment against the one offender, he goes and takes it and blows it out against everybody, right? And this becomes a disqualification both in how he does it and then also using sign of the covenant of God uh, in order to um, exact the vengeance. So it's a corruption. It's a disqualification. So um, after all of this, um, we see that we see that in verse 8 of 49 uh, of chapter 49 of Genesis that Jacob says, Judah, you are he who your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemy. and Your father's children shall bow down before you. And he goes on in verse 9 and says, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And in and excuse me, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to a choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. And so here Jacob says, Okay, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, they've all been disqualified. It's gonna go the, the, the seed, the kingly line, the deliverer is going to come from the line of Judah. And he puts that blessing upon them. So then you say, all right, so we know what the plan is, and then what happens? Well, historically, then um, we know that they're in Egypt at this point, 
And then, and then you have this situation where all of the people, including Judah, are going to be enslaved for a long time. And it's interesting, when God raises up a deliverer, he doesn't raise it from the kingly line. God establishes a priestly line to bring deliverance to his people. Why does he do that? Why does he establish, why does he bring the deliverance from the priestly line? Because worship of the Almighty is central. Our deliverer is not in kings. Our deliverer is in worship of the Almighty. And obviously, Jesus is both a king and a high priest. And we understand that. But it is not, we're not going to be delivered by a mere man, by a mere king. Um, but we, you know, that's, that's just a, um, I think, reiterates the fact that our worship here on Sunday morning and the worship of our brothers and sisters in every other church that, that is worshiping God this morning, um, that changes the world. Um, we want to have godly men and people who are submitting themselves to God's word in the civil magistrate and our governments, but that's not going to bring change to the world. Worship of the Almighty, being incorporated into the people of God, that changes the world. And so you, you go through all this and it's, yes, ma'am. Did I say, you mean in the case of Jesus? So what it says in Hebrews is that um, Jesus is a priest, the high priest from the order of Melchizedek, which was the priestly line before the establishment of the people of Israel. So um, what we have here is we have the oldest order of priests. Jesus is, is of that priestly line, so it supersedes the, um, the tribe of Levi. Um, that's a short answer. Well, sure, but so then the, then the argument becomes, are we not all priests in one sense, right, in the, new, in the new covenant after Christ's ascension? So I think that would be kind of the line that you kind of work through in, in that. Um, but, th but they go through, uh, was there anything else there? Okay. So, so they, go, they go through this long time. God brings them in, teaches them how to worship. He lays out all these things. He teaches them how to live. He gives them laws. He clarifies everything that creation has taught them. And by the way, that there have been priests in the land because we see not only was there Melchizedek in the time of Abraham, but at the time of Moses, there's Jethro, right? Moses' father-in-law, he's a priest of Yahweh. So it's not like the truths of God were simply lost, but rather people were ignoring the truth of Yahweh. And God, Yahweh sets aside his, his covenant people, he establishes worship, right? And then they sin, and God wants to grow them and mature them and sends them through in the midst of their deliverance into the wilderness. For what purpose? The scriptures say that he did that to see what was in their heart so that they could grow and mature and really trust in him. They go into the promised land. Man, years and generations are going on here. Why is why why didn't they raise up? Why didn't God raise up 
a kingly line yet in Judah. Because then we go through all the judges. What's taking so long? Well, um, for me, uh, when I when I came across this this week, there was a certain amount of, of uh, humility in the sense of you know recognizing the gravity of our sin. Where God's grace abounds, and and I'll make a, a larger point to the fact that um, in Christ Jesus, um, the generational sin is broken. But sometimes we do sins, and they carry with us through um, the remainder of our life. We battle with it. It presents issues in our families and in uh, the generations around us, um, when, especially when folks um, don't draw into Christ and look to them for the, look to Him for deliverance. Um, but but God is always faithful to keep His word. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, um, there's uh, it's just a section. If you look in your, your Bible, it'll say like miscellaneous laws. And in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 23, it says, One of illegitimate birth cannot enter the assembly of Yahweh, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of Yahweh. Now this is a miscellaneous law, and you're saying, what does this have to do with anything, right? Well, God intended, even though that maybe the people of Israel beforehand didn't know this, Judah wasn't thinking about this, God comes along when he establishes the people and says, look, if you have someone of illegitimate birth, basically a bastard, born outside of proper marriage, they can't be in the assembly. That is to say, they can't hold a place of power and authority in the assembly. Now, how does this apply? So this applies, I, I see Ben grinning back there, you know how this applies? Okay. That's right. Right, David is ten generations past Judah, and, and, and well, and we, you know, we, we make that, you make that comment made by the skin of his teeth, but it was the established by God that David would rise up as the tenth generation. What, what happened here? Remember the story of, of Judah and Tamar, right? So, so Judah is there, and uh, he, uh, he has sons, and his first son was wicked. And so the, the Bible says the Lord struck him down, right? And he had a wife, Tamar. And scripturally speaking, what's supposed to happen is that the second brother is supposed to take the first brother's wife, produce a seed in the name of the first brother, right? So Judah gives Onan, uh, gives Tamar to Onan, that's the second son. And the Bible says that Onan didn't want to obey God and instead uh, defiled Tamar and God struck him down. Now, I mean, part of it was he, he had sex and then to plant the seed, but but so so in that, God brought judgment on Onan, and he died, and so then the then the deal should have fallen to the third brother, and we know that Judah's like, man, I think this woman is bad news, right? 
That wasn't her sin. It was the sins of these of his own sons, right? And so he doesn't intend to give the third son Tamar. And so Tamar knows this, and then she does what looks merely uh, at at the, at the at first uh, wickedness, right? Because what does she do? She finds out that they're going to have this sheep shearing party out there. And so she takes off her widow's clothes and puts on the clothes of a prostitute and goes and sits out near where they're going to be. Now this tells you something about maybe why his sons were wicked, particularly in in the area of sexual immorality. Because what did Jacob do? Jacob saw the prostitute, went over there and made barter with the prostitute. He impregnated Tamar. Now he... Did I? Sorry. Yeah, Judah. My, my fault. So Judah impregnates uh, Tamar. And, and of course, in God's providence, Judah didn't have his money bag with him. And so he gives the sign of his power, his signet. He, he gives his staff and his signet to her. And then she takes, oh, I got him now. She runs off. Right? Well, the next day when the servant comes out to pay her, she's not there. They can't find her. When Tamar shows up pregnant, Judah's incensed, pulls her out, and when when she's standing before them, she pulls out, "Look, it's it's you. You're the one." And yes, sir. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. Because there was an obligation for for Judah to see that that seed go through, and, and we find out that through that union of Judah and Tamar, we have Perez. And if you turn to the book of Ruth, um, we see this in Ruth chapter 4 and verse 18. So we know that Judah is the father of Perez. Now it says this in Ruth chapter 4, verse 18. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. So that's one and two. Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab. That's three and four. Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon. That's five and six. And Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed. That's seven and eight. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. The tenth generation. So, so two things here. One, if um, what what if Obed or Jesse were selected, and they were they were pushed into the kingly. That that it would not have worked out because you can bet someone would have gone around and said, "Nope." Remember Deuteronomy twenty three verse two: "You're not qualified." Throw him, try to usurp and throw David out. God, knowing that he is consistent and truthful and keeps his word. When he established this, this uh, in to, to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy, he knows what has happened with Judah and Tamar in generations past. And his plan, his ordained plan, is for David. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, I haven't spent a lot of time thinking on this, uh, but... I think about how the how the fact that um, the people.
people of Israel should have known that Saul was only going to be a temporary king because he was from the tribe of Benjamin and that they were ignoring um, the long-term prophecy that their father Jacob gave onto Judah. Um, Anyway, uh, by the way, in in relationship to Saul, let me commend you if you haven't seen already. um, Jonathan White out here had an article published in the last week or so. Um, Was that put out by Kyperion, or was he just recommending it from his Kyperion? Yeah, it's on it's on So that's uh, Yuri Brito's. Um, he's got a lot of people that post that, that publish on there, but you know, Jonathan wrote a, uh, something worthy of considering uh, when we consider King Saul. So I, I commend you. We can send you a link. And maybe it was already out there on the realm. I don't recall. Um, so I'm, I'm going I'm to do this, Jonathan. I'm going to throw it to you. Would you put the link on there uh, now that I promoted it? <clears throat> so, but... But, but I, I think this is important for us to realize. Let's, let's swing all the way back, right? God has an ordained plan to call all of his elect. He's at work. Sometimes we go before God and we're bringing good and legitimate things. And, and God is gracious. Um, and I, I want to point one other thing out as it relates to, um, you know, people of, illegitimate situations not being allowed in the assembly right that's not being allowed in the the presence of God's people that Jesus spent his whole ministry going about healing and restoring people so they could go into the assembly right certainly raising the dead but leprosy which cuts you off from the assembly right blindness that cuts you off assembly issues of blood that cut you off from the assembly and finally right what cuts us off from the assembly of being before god well there's the veil in the temple right and so in in the work of jesus christ that veil is torn from top to bottom so that through jesus christ we can enter in the presence of our god and father and so um, i i just want to bring that up to say that, you know, if we have somebody that, that uh, is, has illegitimate birth, they're no longer cut off from the assembly if they're in Christ Jesus, okay? The gospel, the gospel um, provides a way through this, this not being able to be in this place um, with God's people in the assembly. But, but I want to encourage you, keep petitioning the Lord for the things that you know are good and godly for lost family members for marriages, for jobs that the Lord would send a revival into our community right keep going to God and know that God's sovereign hand that long period is is because God is working out his plans I'm going to give one quick testimony here. Three years ago, it was totally unimaginable that one of my brothers would embrace Jesus Christ. He was just fighting God, fighting God. He'd been on a long, long, long journey fighting God, living wickedly. And then when he tried to 
well, I'm going to just do right myself. And then later he kind of negotiated, like he was trying to negotiate with God. Well, I'll I'll, uh, I'll start praying with my family and I'll do this, but uh, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to go to church. And and in and in the the circumstances, I'll tell you. You know, my brother, that brother, was just um, devastated when my brother Stephen died. He was like, I've been the wicked one. I should have died. And, you know, he had all of this stuff. And, you know, as a matter of fact, during those, that week and the funeral and the weeks to come, his blood pressure, they couldn't treat it at the hospital. They couldn't get it down. It just, his, his anxieties and fears and everything else were just gripping him. And, and I just say all this is I, I could not have imagined at that point that he would um, surrender and be restored to God. Um, last October, I don't know why, he just started bringing his family to church. I mean, I've been telling him a long time, it's not that good. Right? And Wednesday night, he met with the elders in Monroe to become restored back to the church and be his whole family to be brought into membership. Right? Three years ago, God-hating, resistant. God even took a situation of the death of my brother, one brother, to put the pressure on him. And we look at the difficulties and the tragedies, and, we, and I, I'm just trying to use this little thing in my family, but we can look to Scripture and see these very same things, right? Difficulties and unexplainable tragedies and all of this stuff, and what is God doing? Right? God is at work. He's faithful. Continue to follow Him. Petition Him. And trust God that He's going to be faithful to His promises to us. Yes, sir. to see Ambrose because he heard how not not because he wanted to know about God but because he heard Ambrose was such a great orator right and then he starts hanging around Ambrose because he's just enthralled not with the spiritual but with this physical thing and God converts him and he becomes 
uh, a great church father that has impacted the church ever since. Yes, sir. Yes. Talking about in the orange grove. I'm, I'm at the I'm at the ten thousand foot, but but essentially what what I guess we're saying here is beseech God, pray and wait, and even though it seems like you're long suffering, trust God and is there something you're gonna say? Okay, I thought you were reading. All right, well very good. Um, I hope I hope this Sunday school lesson um, maybe you you got a few things, but but also it's an encouragement uh, to us all. Um, Oh, okay. I keep seeing this finger go like this. All right. Okay. Um, Pray for her. And, 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 you know, by the way, in the story of God's faithfulness, um, until, like, like I started working on this on Friday, and I, I kind of finished kind of like my notes yesterday, and it wasn't until this morning where I was even thinking about its personal application. Uh, to my family, but rest in God. Rest in God. Believe Him. Beseech Him. And people of God, let's worship God, because that changes the world. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank You, O Lord, for Your Word and Your faithfulness. I pray, Father, that You would grant us mercy. Uh, Father, we thank You for this Ascension Sunday. We uh, pray that You would please prepare our hearts for worship renewal of your covenant promises to us. In Jesus' name.